Amen. Again, it's good to have you here tonight. If you um, are new to the evening service tonight, we're in the middle of a sermon series in St. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out and open up to the New Testament. Galatians is one of Paul's letters uh, right after 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible tonight, we're on page 974 and 975. We pick back up here in our study of this letter in Galatians chapter 5, tonight looking at verses 1 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 12. I'll read this text and then we'll pray and jump in. So hear God's word for you, friends, tonight. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. On that note, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come now and work as you've promised to do, as you have done in your church for thousands upon thousands of years. Use this word, these words written on these pieces of paper that have been preserved now for centuries to change our lives, Father. We ask that you would do this because only you can do that. We can't change ourselves. Others can't change us, and we can't change others. We need a supernatural intervention, and we pray that that would take place here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, One of my great memories of high school basketball practices when I was a high schooler is... um, something one of my coaches would often say. He was a stickler about running his offense and running his defense and making sure that the play was called was the play that was run. And when it wasn't the play that was run, even if it resulted in a bucket, even if it resulted in a good sequence, he would say, listen, it's my way or the highway. And he said that very often, particularly to one of our best players, one of our most talented players, a guy named Chris Magruder. I still see his face as clear as day in my mind. Uh, He was a great basketball talent, just a remarkable player, but he also liked to sort of do his own thing. If you've played basketball, you probably know what I mean. Uh, Even if the coach would say, pass the ball, he oftentimes would shoot the ball in an acrobatic fashion and make it. And all the time, our coach was saying to Chris, whether he made the bucket or not, Magruder, it's my way or the highway. And if he didn't run the right play, if he didn't make the right pass, if he didn't do what the coach wanted, eventually he was riding the pine, no matter how talented he was. Listen, Galatians, of all of the letters in the Bible, is a my way or the highway letter. Um, Paul, 
of all the things he writes to us in this letter is more black and white and is more stringent upon what he's asking these people in these churches in South Turkey to do than he is in any other parts of the Bible. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, Paul's very nuanced. He's very careful. He's very precise. Oftentimes, Paul recognizes that there's a lot, there's a lot, of, a lot of gray area in life. Things aren't always simple. Things aren't always a zero-sum game. It's not always an either-or proposition when we come to difficult decisions or difficult issues in our lives. But that's not how Paul is in Galatians. Galatians is not gray. It's black and white. Galatians is not nuanced. It's pretty blunt. Galatians is not um, one of many options, but rather in Galatians, Paul presents to us an either-or, my-way-or-the-highway proposition. Galatians chapter 5, the text I just read for us, is very much in line, very much keeping with that theme, that my-way-or-the-highway mentality that Paul has developed throughout the letter. Now, since we've been away from Galatians for a while, let me remind you of what's going on here. Um, Paul had planted a number of churches of churches in a region then known as Galatia, today known uh, as South Turkey. He planted these churches, and then he left to do other missionary work. And after he planted these churches, these young churches, with many Gentile converts to Christianity, some new teachers came in. And these teachers, whom the New Testament calls Judaizers, claim to have uh, an advanced gospel, a gospel 2.0, an updated version of the gospel. And they said to the Galatian churches, listen, what Paul told you was wonderful. Believing upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins is wonderful. That's absolutely essential. But, but it's not sufficient. Jesus is essential, but he's not sufficient. In order to really be a part of God's community, of God's family, in order to really be okay with God in your relationship. You don't just have to believe Jesus. You also have to become Jewish, hence their name, the Judaizers. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe certain feasts and days. You have to basically become culturally like Jews are culturally. And so Paul got wind of this new teaching sprouting up in his young church plants, and he got ticked. And then he wrote Galatians. He wrote Galatians while he was still ticked off. If you read the letter, you can tell. And as he wrote it, he's warning and strongly encouraging the Galatians not to believe this new message. It's not an updated gospel. It's not the deluxe edition. It's not version 2.0. When you tinker with the gospel, Paul tells us again and again and again and again, you lose the gospel. That's the message of the Galatians. That's what we've been hitting on time and time and time again in this series. Last time, Pastor Stu preached a great sermon from the end of chapter 4 in that strange allegory that Paul uses there at the end of chapter 4 from a part of the Old Testament book of Genesis to make the basic point that we have been freed through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, because we are free, we should live like it. We should not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And Paul summarizes that in chapter 5, verse 1, and uses this idea of freedom and slavery as a launching pad for a new discussion, beginning in verse 2, which we're going to look at tonight. 
And there's a lot that we can say here, um, but we're not going to cover it all. I just want to hit two big main topics for you as we look at Galatians 5, 1 through 12. There's some important things going on here uh, about living the Christian life or sanctification. We're going to get to those next time, so come back for that. But for tonight, here are the two big points that I want you to see Paul making. He's laying out two black and white, my way or the highway issues. One of them regards the message, and one of them regards the messengers. Regarding the message, Paul's saying, are you going to live by and believe and profess Christ or circumcision? And regarding the messengers, Paul says, are you going to continue to proclaim and preach a gospel that is a scandal, or are you going to settle? So those are our two big points. That's where we're headed tonight. The outline's on the back of your uh, bulletin. You can take some notes if you wish. Otherwise, just follow along. So first, the message. The first, my way or the highway issue. Christ or circumcision. Now, Paul, as we've said, is really worked up. (laughs) He's really worked up throughout Galatians. He's angry. He's perplexed. He's befuddled. And this part of the letter totally fits with that. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, look, and that's an emphatic use of the word there. It's sort of like when you're in an argument with your wife or with your husband and you want to end the argument and just stomp your foot and say, look, here's the deal. That's what Paul's doing here. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He uses some strong language. Verse 4, you're severed, cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. And then clearly, verse 12, one of the strongest words in the Bible, I wish those who teach this message to you who unsettle you would castrate themselves or emasculate themselves. They care so much about circumcision, I wish they would go all the way. So he's mad. He's angry. He's, he's sort of spitting fire at this point. So why? What's got Paul so worked up? Again, verse 2 is a great jumping point for us. Paul has come and preached to them. He's preached to them a message of free grace. He's preached to them a gospel of grace that Jesus, in his death for them on the cross, has completely wiped away the slate that was against them before God and that they are now totally acceptable to him. And he's mad because the Galatians have taken this grace gospel and now they're trying to to mix it with a law gospel. They're trying to mix it with a circumcision gospel, which Paul says in chapter 1 is really no gospel. When you mix the grace gospel, you end up with no gospel. That's the recipe every single time. He's mad at them because they're confused. They're confused, and they've been confused by these new teachers about what the gospel, the heart of Christianity, really is all about. Let me make that a little bit clearer for you as we think here just for a couple of minutes um, about the message. The Galatians we've seen are confused. And they're confused. Here's really the key way to understand it. They're confused because as a result of this false teaching in the churches, they are now beginning to think. They're now beginning to think that in order to be okay with God, in order to be justified or declared righteous, in order to be a part of God's family, you are required. That's the key word required to do certain things, namely to get circumcised and to basically become Jewish. Now, the problem wasn't with circumcision as a physical act. The problem wasn't with Jewishness or with keeping kosher. The problem, Paul's saying, was thinking that simply doing these things brings you favor with God. 
Don't miss that. The problem is the belief that anything we do secures our standing with God, our justification. That's why he says in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, faith in Christ. And a real faith, a faith that manifests itself through love. We're going to talk more about that verse next time. Now, as I thought about this, this application popped into mind. Think about um, the concept of contractual obligations. You know, I think about the sports world, of course, right? Um, and one thing as a sports fan, and if you're a sports fan, I'm sure one thing that bothers you is if you follow a team and a, a player signs, say, a four-year contract to play for such and such a team at such and such a salary, usually something like $7 million a year, you know, so he shouldn't be complaining, period. He has two good seasons, so he's halfway through his contract, and then he demands a new contract. He says, I'm not going to play out the rest of this contract. That really ticks off sports fans generally. And the reason is because when you sign on the dotted line as a player or in any sort of profession or position, especially when you're getting $7 million coming into your bank account, you fulfill the contract. You are obligated based on that agreement, based on that contract, based on that commitment to do what you've said you're going to do, and your employer is going to pay you what they've said they're going to pay you. Now, we all get that. That's the way the world tends to work. It's the way business operates. But that is not the gospel. And the Galatians' problem, and our problem, is that we often move from a gospel of free grace into a gospel of contractual obligation. We move from a grace economy with God into a law economy with God. And Paul's reminding them of this again and again. The Galatians were thinking, if, if I fulfill my end of the deal, if I live up to my contract, if I get circumcised and basically become a Jew, then God is obligated. He's obligated to accept me as one of his. And all I have to do is get circumcised and be a Jew, and then God must bless me. And Paul's saying this contract obligation mindset is inimical to the gospel. It is anti-gospel. And the reason it's anti-gospel, he says, is because we can't really fulfill the contract. Look at verse 3. I testify to you again, every one of you who accepts circumcision, you're obligated, no, not just to get circumcised, but to keep the whole law. So Paul's saying again that when you move back into a contract obligation mindset in your relationship with God, you're not moving into greater freedom. You're not moving into more maturity. No, you're going back again into slavery. That's why he's so serious here. That's why he's so angry with them. It's an anti-gospel, he says, because it doesn't produce freedom. It produces slavery. It enslaves you to demands that you can't fulfill and to laws that you can't keep. That's why it's anti-gospel. It doesn't produce hope, he's saying. It's only going to produce despair, operating with this sort of contract obligation mindset with God. It's not going to produce joy. It's only going to produce doubt and worry and this never-ending cycle in your spiritual mind of if you're good enough or if you're doing enough for God to be pleased with you or for the community to be pleased with you. That's why Paul's so animated. You see, it's a my way or the highway proposition. It's either Christ or circumcision. It's either acceptance of Jesus' merit 
or the always failing attempts to earn our own merit. It's either Jesus's perfection given to us freely or our constantly failing efforts to attain perfection. It's either the gospel or the law. It's either life or death. It's either freedom or slavery. Now, I want that to sink in because that's why Galatians was written, for that to sink in, that idea. Martin Luther said that the default position of the human heart is to veer and swerve back into a, a law mentality, to find ways in which we can justify ourselves or make ourselves acceptable to God. And I think Luther is exactly right. And that is exactly what Paul's speaking against here. You struggle with that. If you're a Christian, or if you're not, you probably don't think that your self-justification project consists in getting circumcised. You're not a first century Jew, and you probably aren't going to start living like one anytime soon. If you do, then you need to hear another sermon at some other point. Um, You probably don't think that keeping kosher is the way that you're going to justify yourself or make yourself more acceptable to God, but there's something There's something that you tend to swerve towards or veer to that is your functional righteousness. It's the thing that makes you think, I'm acceptable. It's the thing that you end up being, um, relying on for your identity. Now, what might that be for you? Well, I don't know. There's all sorts of options. But here's a question to ask yourself to do a little self-diagnosis of your heart. What is it that when you do really, really well, you kind of, swell up with pride and stick your chest out and walk tall? And what is it that when you do it really, really poorly or fail at it really, really miserably, you feel just unbelievably guilty and depressed and down? Whatever the answer is to that question, it's very likely that that's your functional righteousness. That's where you're finding your identity. That's what you're pursuing to make you more acceptable to God, to yourself, and to others. And there's all sorts of things that can fill that void in our lives that only God and the gospel should be filling. You know, I've talked about this before, but I'm convinced part of this is just the life stage we're in that for a lot of us, it's, it's being a good parent and having good kids becomes our functional righteousness. We think, well, I, I, I'm not doing this and I don't do that well and I'm not gifted here, but dadgummit, at least I'm committed to my kids and they're going to private school and they're going to get into college and they don't hit each other in Sunday school At least I'm a good dad. At least I'm a good mom. At least my kids obey me. Look at this, God. Some of you might fill that void, and this is something else that's very common. It's common in my heart by being the the best theologian or the most keen observer of theological insights and tricky nuances and the biggest, biggest fan of your particular tribe or denomination or stripe of Christianity. And you're such a fan of your tribe or your stripe or your denomination that eventually, somewhat subtly, you begin to sort of peer down your nose at those who aren't in your tribe, at those who might disagree with you on some secondary issues. And you think, look at me, God. I'm reformed. Some of you might think. Some of you might believe. Some of you might act like your functional righteousness is just, you know, busyness. How often, when someone asks you how, you do, how you're doing, do you just say, man, I'm, I'm busy? 
so busy, so busy. Now, that's not always a bad answer. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. But sometimes when I give that answer, sometimes when I hear that answer, I think, you know, what, what is that? You know, isn't that just a way we kind of, in a sense, we don't really want to tell them anything real that's going on in our lives, but we want them to think how busy and how important and how attuned we are and how involved we are. I'm busy, man. I'm so, in fact, I'm so busy that I'm not going to talk to you anymore. See you later. I'm going to go tell, tell someone else I'm busy. You know? Uh, busyness. 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 We're just wandering around thinking we're important. It, it, becomes, it becomes a way that we attempt to justify ourselves. It becomes our functional righteousness. It becomes something that we give to God and subtly, subconsciously say, God, look at this. Check me out. I'm really doing well. I'm particularly doing better than this guy who's not as busy as me or this guy who doesn't go to the same denominational church I do or this guy whose kids are always acting up in church. Look at me, God. It's not circumcision for you. It's not Jewishness for you, but it's something for you. Your tendency is to stray away from your identity that's found only in the free grace of Jesus. Your tendency is to veer down the road of circumcision rather than to go along the road that is Christ. And so Paul says this must stop. The Christian life is an ever-recurring effort to die to our own attempts at self-justification and to rest in Jesus' work for us. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you must believe the gospel and continually believe the gospel. We must repent of our Galatian-like tendencies to operate with God and with others with a contract obligation mindset. That's why Paul has such a big beef here. That's why he's so intense. But it's not the only reason. So one other thing I want to show you. We've seen the the my way or highway approach to the message. It's either Christ or circumcision. But in verse 7 in particular, Paul moves to the second my way or the highway issue. And that's not on the receiving end of the gospel, but rather on the delivery end of the gospel. He's here not so much concerned with the message as he is with the messengers, the deliverers of the message. And he transitions to say, listen, for the messengers as well, for those who proclaim the gospel, for those who claim to believe the gospel and live in the world as Christians, you have an option. You can either continue to preach something that's scandalous or you can stop and settle. Look with me in the text, verse 7. Here he starts going after the Judaizers directly. You were running well. Who? Personal pronoun. Who is it? Who's the person? Who's the dude? I want a meeting that's hindered you from obeying the truth, right? Verse 10, again, the one, the guy, the dude that's troubling you, I want to know who this guy is, whoever he is, because he is going to bear the penalty. It's a my way or the highway approach for Paul. The bottom line with the messengers is that they must be committed to a my way or the highway approach in their proclamation. He's saying to them, when the gospel, listen, when the gospel is compromised in a ministry on the receiving end and also on the delivery end, that spells deep trouble, not just for that church, but also for that minister, also for the one who's giving the message. Look at what he says in verse 10. You're not going to take any other view than mine. I'm confident of that. The one who's troubling you, what's going to happen to him? He will bear the penalty. And then in verse 11, he gets right to the nub of the issue. He says there, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense. Here's the key. The offense or, or the scandal. 
the offense or the scandal of the cross has been removed. Listen, this is really important. The true message of the gospel is a scandal. It's offensive. It's going to make people angry when you tell it to them. And so what Paul's saying here is that the gospel must, must remain that. So why is it? Why is it that the gospel's scandalous? Let's reflect on that for a minute. Think about it. Really, really, to preach law is easy. To preach the law is, is very easy, particularly when compared with preaching grace. You know, why is it that throughout human history and today and until Jesus comes back, Self-help speakers, motivational speakers, guys that basically come in and say, listen, you're doing okay, but you've got some issues. Here's three tips for how to do better in this part of your life and in this part of your life. Let me help you fill in some of the holes. And those people that under the umbrella and under the guise of Christianity say basically the same thing. Listen, Jesus just wants to help you do a little bit better here and iron out some of the issues here and do better here. Here's a seven-step process for a better life. Here's the things you need to do. Here's the checklist that you need to run down. Man, people love that. Why do you think Joel Osteen has 45,000 people in his church every Sunday? It's not because he preaches the gospel. It's because he goes under the name of Christianity preaching heresy, preaching exactly what the Judaizers are preaching, saying, listen, listen, all you need is to obey a little more and do a little more and think a little bit more carefully about how to get this thing marked off of your checklist. And people love that. People love that because, listen, no one thinks, no one in the world thinks that they've got it all together. No one thinks that they don't have any problems. There's no one who thinks that they don't have any holes to fix. And so people want a little bit to help their problem. They want to pour a little Christianity here and a little Christianity here and a little Christianity here to take care of some of the issues that they haven't, they haven't been able to figure out yet. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel says to you. The gospel, the gospel says to you that your biggest problem isn't all the unrighteous things that you're still doing. Your biggest problem is your pretended righteousness that you think makes you acceptable before God and before others. He's saying your, your biggest problem is not that you don't think you have any problems. Your biggest problem is that you don't think your self-justifying efforts to make yourself better are a problem. Your biggest issue is not that you need to fill a few holes here and fill a few holes there and round into a little bit better of a shape to be a better guy, to be a better husband, to be a better Christian, to be a better citizen. Your biggest problem is that you think you can be better enough to be okay with God. Yes, you should be a better husband. Yes, you should be a better citizen. Yes, you should be a better, citizen, a better Christian. But no, none of those things are enough to make you acceptable before God. And so your biggest problem is that you think that they are. And when a messenger tells you that, he's no longer scandalizing you. He's no longer offending you. He's no longer saying to you, you can never do enough. He's saying, just do a little bit here and a little bit there, and really at the end of the day, you'll be okay. That's what George Whitfield is getting at there in the quote uh, that's on your sermon uh, on the front of the sermon, I think this is an amazing quote. He says, if you've never felt the deficiency of your own goodness, you cannot come to Jesus Christ. It's easy to preach law. It's easy to give seven steps to a better life. And those things, frankly, are very helpful in a lot of ways. But those things are not 
the gospel. And to give that message and then call it the gospel is not just okay. It's, it's actually much, much, much worse. It's to remove the offense of the cross. Listen, to preach grace is scandalous. It's offensive. It's angering. And this is uh, one more thing and we're done. This is, a, this is a distinctly Christian idea. That's something else I want you to get. Um, in a sense, all of the other religions of the world and all of the other ways of living life are, are helpful. You might think it's weird to hear a Christian pastor say that, but they all share some common traits about how we can improve our lives. Much of it, frankly, is just common sense. Uh, there are things in Buddhism that can be helpful. There are things that completely secularized people can tell you that are going to be helpful to you. There are things that Islam teaches that are helpful. There's no doubt about that. But none of those things are anything like Christianity because those things are all about addressing, again, the areas in our lives where we're deficient and have some holes. But the gospel is totally different, you see. Christianity, listen, is a radically, it's a radically alternative way because it says your biggest problem is not the holes you need to do better in. Your biggest problem is that you think you're fixing the holes in your life will make you okay with God. Your biggest problem is not the failures caused by your badness. It's not. Your biggest problem is the perceived successes you think your goodness can give you. Let me close with this story. Very powerful story from the Bible from one of the Gospels that um, illustrates this idea perfectly. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Remember the story? Rich young guy. Very religious, good-looking, wealthy, successful young man comes up to Jesus and says to him, listen, Jesus, um, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Just give me a checklist. Tell me what I need to do. And Jesus, being wise, perceiving this man's heart at the outset, first says this, Keep God's law. Keep the Ten Commandments. Don't kill. Honor your father and your mother. Oh, I've done all these things since I was a kid. Come on, I'm ready for Gospel 2.0. I'm ready for the deluxe edition. Those things are taken care of. Those holes are filled. Those are not deficiencies in my life. What else? Give away everything you have to the poor and come follow me. Slow down, Jesus. And what does Luke say? He says, The young man went away very distraught because he was a man of great wealth. What's the rich young ruler thinking? He's thinking, I just need Jesus. I just need Christianity to help me be a little bit better than I already am. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians. You just need to be a little bit better than you already are. And you can do that just by getting circumcised. That's all you have to do. Just check that off the list and you're going to be okay with God. You can just, just a little bit more. And we tend to be like the rich young ruler. We're very religious. We're very successful. We are very respected in the eyes of our comrades and our associates and our colleagues. And we think, you know, if I just sprinkle a little bit of Christianity on the cupcake that is my life, it's going to be much, much more edible and beautiful and tasty. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Your big, big problem is that you think you just need to do a little bit better. But anyone who accepts circumcision is required to fulfill the whole law. What you need is me. All you need is me. So where are you? 
Where are you in your understanding of the message? Is it Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Or is it Jesus plus something, even if it's like point zero 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 one percent of the equation equals really, really God accepting you and really, really being a part of God's family? Where are you at? Is Jesus your righteousness? Are you resting in Jesus? Or are you looking to define your identity and be accepted by God and others by something else that you are trying to do? And where are you at in your delivering of the message? How are you portraying Christianity as one who believes it? Are you telling people that unless you understand the deficiency of your own goodness, you can never come to Jesus Christ and maybe ticking people off a little bit? Not because you're a jerk, but because the message of the gospel is scandalous? Or have you settled? Have you removed the offense? Have the edges that were sharp been roughed out and blunted a little bit? Where are you? Paul is calling you to diagnose your heart and to rely upon Jesus Christ alone as he's freely offered to you in the gospel and to proclaim Jesus Christ alone as he's freely offered to you in, your gospel, in the gospel. Because listen, Jesus Christ alone is not just enough. He's everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, uh, this part of Galatians has um, rebuked and chastised me this week and exposed my own heart, my own desire to um, reclaim my self-justification projects, my own desire to live in a law economy with God because I foolishly think that it's going to make me better, that God's going to love me more, that other people will respect me more deeply. And Father, we pray, I pray that you would bring me and all of us to repentance in those areas. Teach us to abandon these uh, charades, these games that we play, trying to make ourselves look better, trying to achieve acceptance with you through something other than the cross of Jesus. And teach us to rest, to rest in Christ. Father, without the Holy Spirit, we're never going to do that, nor would we have ever done that. And so, Spirit, come and work on us, work on our hearts, teaching us not independence, Lord. We do not need independence, but we need dependence. Teach us dependence upon our Savior, who has done all that is required for us to be completely accepted into your family, for us to be justified and freely forgiven now and forever. Help us to revel in that truth, to adore that truth, and to proclaim that truth. We pray it in your name. Amen.